Hello and welcome to Become an Educator, the podcast that aims to explore the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms. I'm Darren Leslie, and each week I discuss things that will hopefully make an impact in your school, with guests from classroom teachers to head teachers and everyone in between and beyond in the education sector. This week on Becoming Educated, I am joined by Hailey Hughes. Hailey is an English teacher and a former head of the department and senior leader who has mentored new teachers and ITT students for over 10 years. Hailey is a former journalist and has been teaching for the best part of 15 years and has enjoyed developing teachers at many stages of their career. Hailey writes regularly for TES and other education publications and she's the author of Preserving Positivity and Mentoring in Schools. We will discuss mentoring in schools in today's podcast. I start by asking Hailey to share a little bit about the early career framework which forms the basis of her book Mentoring in Schools and ask her to share how she was involved in shaping it. I ask her why mentoring is so important for both supporting teachers to improve earlier in their career and also retain them in the profession. And listeners of the podcast will have heard us talk, heard me and my guests talk about teacher retention and why so many teachers leave the profession in their first five years. We then unpack the book Mentoring in Schools and discuss what highly learned in our research from focus group findings, from literature review of each standard, because the book has a chapter based on each of the teaching standards of the early career framework. And we unpick two of my favourite ones, standard two, how pupils learn, and I think it's standard five, adapting teaching. I then ask Hailey what impact mentoring of a teacher has on their students. And then we go on to discuss the idea that no matter what stage of your career you're at, being mentored can have fantastic results. It can revitalise and re-energise your focus. And Hailey shares some wonderful personal anecdotes on this idea. And I can't wait for you to listen to Hailey speak about mentoring. So let's dive right in. Thanks so much for coming on Becoming Educated tonight. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. Long day after a parents' evening, but I'm really excited to be I, here, so thanks for asking. I know, I'm, I'm so impressed that you've done a full day's work, a parents' evening, and then you're coming out to chat to me, so thanks so much. Um, so today we're going to chat about um, your latest book, Mentoring in Schools. Uh, such a fascinating book and aligned to the early career framework, which will be kicking into place in, in September. September, am I right for this? Yeah, yeah, rolling out nationwide in September, yeah. Right. So just to ease us into the interview, before we unpick some of the some of the ideas behind mentoring in schools, could you kick us off by sharing a little bit about you and your career to date in education? Yeah, sure. So um I was a late entrant to the profession. Um I was a journalist. A national newspaper in London, we dare not say its name, it no longer exists, so I think you can put two and two together there. Um, and to be honest, teaching was something that I never really wanted to do. Um, I used to make terrible comments about teachers, I don't mind admitting, saying that, you know, they had all the holidays, nine till half, three job, 
um, you know, that teaching was something that people with an English degree did when they couldn't think of anything else to do. You know, everything that was ever said bad about teachers, I probably said, and I, I literally cringe at what I used to say now, to be honest. Um, but, um, you know, I'd worked um, at the newspaper for quite a few years um, and I just wasn't feeling professionally fulfilled, to be honest. Um, I have quite a strong moral purpose and I was finding that my moral purpose was tested quite a lot in that job um, with the things that I was being asked to do the situations I was being put in and around kind of 2008 I just said you know enough is enough um, and I'm going to retrain and at that time that coincided with the birth of my first son Hendrix um, so I decided I was going to do my maternity leave and then commence a PGC in the September um, and I moved up through um, school leadership quite quickly really I think it helped that I'd had quite a high pressured job um, before that so I was able to manage the workload um, and the pressures of teaching probably a lot more um, easily I guess mm -hmm. than, than some other NQTs who come into the profession straight from university and I became second in English, um, director of English um, and then I had a big epiphany at the time and decided that um, I wasn't liking um, leadership to be honest middle leadership at that point um, because um, the school that I was at was in a category. It was in special measures. It was a really tough job at the time. I had an amazing department. I loved kids. Um, so I decided to make a huge change and move across um, the Northwest to a rural school in Saddleworth in Greater Manchester, go back to the classroom um, and do a master's degree in psychology at the same time. Um, and um, that's kind of where I find myself now, really, but probably after seven years of being at school, ready to, to make the next step back up to leadership again, um, because I feel like my, I suppose I'm re-energised and, and revitalised, really, and ready to take on the challenge again. Um, and I started writing books only two years ago. <laughs> it seems like a million years ago now. Um, and Mentoring in Schools is my second published book. The first was Preserving Positivity with John Catt which is kind of about my journey, really, mm -hmm. and well-being and resilience in the job and, and teacher retention. Um, and I am lucky enough to have two other books hopefully due out this year with different publishers as well. So it's been a bit of a whirlwind, really, to be honest. <laughs> it certainly has. It's unbelievably prolific. And, and we spoke off, off air about, about the, the spinning plates and the, and the juggernaut. I'm, I'm in total awe of, of how you manage it. So we're going to focus mainly on, on mentoring in schools. Um, and the book's aligned to the early career framework, and the early career framework fascinates, fascinates me. I mean, it's not something that, we, that we ha we're going to have in, in Scotland, but from afar, I'm very impressed from um, re reading the, the book and, and the standards. So can I, can I start by asking, asking you to share what the early, early career framework is and to share a little bit about your involvement in shaping it? Yeah, I mean, the, the early career framework is essentially an evidence base um, which underpins the new entitlement for early career teachers. Um, so it, it kind of sets out what early career teachers should be learning um, and how to do those things, how to learn those things during their first two years as a teacher. Um, essentially, it's about retention. You know, we've all read those horrific figures um, in the newspapers, seen them screaming out from, from newspaper front pages to us about one in three teachers leave the classroom before they've done five years. And you know, teaching is such a, a roller coaster of a career. There's so much to learn. You know, I'm kind of 
um, you know, the best part 15 years in now, and I am still learning every single day and refining my craft, we're never finished. So to expect a new teacher to come into a profession and to be the finished article after a year, I think no wonder people were leaving the profession. It's a huge amount of pressure, isn't it? A massive mm -hmm. undertaking. So I think, you know, to, to be fair to the DFE, fair play to them. Um, you know, they've realised this and they've tried to do something about it. Um, so now the NQT year will still be a year of, of the probationary period, but the training support package will be two years. So it's double the time. And that means that um, in kind of practical terms, they will still have a reduced timetable. They will have the support of a mentor for those two years, which sometimes, dependent on the school you were in, that support was taken away after the first year. Mm -hmm. um, and really the, what's so fantastic, I think, about the early career framework, which I think would be a game changer completely if it's used properly, is that they've broken it down into, you know, the six key areas, really, that an, an early career teacher should be honing their craft in. So things like behaviour, their, their pedagogy, the curriculum, assessment, professional behaviours, you know, all of those things which kind of underpin a successful teacher. And my involvement in it really, to be honest, was quite minimal. Um, Professor Sam Twistleton, um, amazing lady who works with the DFE a lot, um, she invited me to one of the meetings about it with a lot of the ITT coordinators. I was really um, kind of felt quite insecure, but rather proud that I was the only uh, school classroom teacher at the meeting. Um, so I was able to actually put forward um, the practicalities of how this might work in a school. Um, so I attended that meeting, loved what I saw and had the idea for the book. So that's where it came about. And I love the, the approach that they had classroom teachers involved in it, talking about the practicalities and, and the evidence base. It's, it's really grounded in, in the classroom. And, and I think that's going to be the basis for its success, as you say. So um, you then written the book, Mentoring in Schools, and, and, and you've broken down each of the standards and, and the book falls a, a similar format all the way through. But before we, we dive into to that, can you... Sure. Why is mentoring so important for both supporting teachers to improve early in the career and also, as we've mentioned, retain them in the profession? Yeah, I mean, I think I'll, I'll speak about an experience I had personal to me to start answering that question. Um, when I was um, a ITT student, I did a PGCA, so quite traditional route. And in my first school, I had an absolutely amazing mentor, still um, very fond of her, Jane. Um, she was incredible. Um, and she um, really nurtured me um, in my first school, made me feel confident about my abilities and was really specific on the areas that I had to develop. Fantastic mentor. I went to my second placement and almost quit forced because the mentor that I had told me that I needed elocution lessons if I ever wanted to be a teacher, told me that the best I could ever hope for was to be a mediocre teacher. They were exact words. Um, and it was just so soul destroying because th this professional relationship with this person then was just irretrievably broken. Um, and it took you know, my um, course leader, my PGC leader, Steve Padgett, really talking me around. He had to do like a meeting with the both of us to get me to stay. And I did stay. And I'm so glad I did now because that taught me a lesson that that is the kind of mentor that I never wanted to become. And unfortunately, 
these stories are so common. Um, mm-hmm. So that is why mentoring is important in teacher retention. And because, you know, a mentor needs to be somebody who can model professional practice, lend an ear. Um, you know, training to teach is a lonely job. Um, I had a, a, a new baby when I trained to teach and I remember spending Friday nights with my poor beleaguered husband sat filing standards evidence in a massive lever arch file drinking a glass of red wine it almost became a Friday night ritual <laughs> you know it's a lonely place and people who aren't in the profession they just don't understand what profession is really like and that's why mentors are so important because they are your professional family you know, they're there for, to give you that compassion balanced with the professional advice that you so need when you are an early career teacher. No, definitely. And, and it's interesting that the stories you share. Thanks so much for, for sharing that story. And as you're right, there are some some stories of, of mentors that are just not the, not the best. And I think back to my, to my own IT experience and my NQT year, I had the, one of the most inspirational men I could ever meet, and I, and I still hold him in such high regard. And that probably is kind of set me off on a path that I kind of have now, and, and I'm so thankful for that, whereas I know that not everyone has that, that same experience. So thanks so much for sharing. And then it, it brings me on to in the book. So each chapter has a little literature review and then followed by a focus group findings. So... Um, what were your main findings from, from mentees that, that you spoke to that you spoke to and what did they say makes a, a good mentor? Yeah, I mean, um, first of all, I should say really that each of the books I've written has had very strong um human voice in it. Mm-hmm. Um so you know, I'm a I'm a virgin in academic research, I'm in the middle of my doctorate at the University of Glasgow, and I think part of my kind of burgeoning ideology as a researcher really is giving a voice to those people who aren't necessarily always heard. Um, so, you know, in, in preserving positivity, that was the teachers who might have left the profession, um, you know, who, who had been worried, who'd been anxious, who'd suffered from, from mental health due to it. And in mentoring in schools, really, it was the early career teachers themselves, because I think so often things are done to them. Um, and they needed an outlet, really. And I think you can learn so much from their experiences about actually what makes a good mentor. And interestingly, um, you know, all of the things that you thought would probably come up did, like the compassion, the understanding, the openness, you know, the willingness to, to listen. Um, but other things came up that I'm not sure would have come up probably 10 years ago. Things like subject knowledge came up. Um, and actually, when I was training, I'll probably um, touch on this a bit, a bit later on. When I was training, probably subject knowledge wasn't up there, to be honest. I think that's very much um, symptomatic of, of the times and, and the push on, on knowledge rich and subject uh, knowledge curriculum. Um, so things like that came up. But the most frequent thing I would say was the balance between being somebody who advises but doesn't micromanage so it was all about kind of coaching and and being a facilitator of of the early career teacher knowing what their weaknesses were and how to improve. And and did any of them speak about co-planning and and the the burden of of workload and, and resourcing? Yeah very much um and you know many of them had had absolutely fantastically positive experiences with their mentors who had helped them with those kind of day-to-day issues that, that teachers have but others had struggled under the weight of it and had felt that their mentors um you know they wanted 
wanted them to do it in a certain way, in the way that they would. And if they didn't, then that was where difficulties arose. I think that this is what could be so great about the early career framework, because it could ensure that everybody is having more or less the same experience with mentors. There isn't going to be that, you know, somebody who who has been forced into being a mentor by the rest of the department because nobody wants to do it you know it's going to raise the status and the profile of mentoring definitely it certainly is and we're going to come back to that kind of idea about mentoring across a school but you're totally right in, in looking from afar and the career framework that the packages that some of the companies have put together are, are so robust that everyone can get the same information and, and you're right that it is really is raising the, the status of, of mentoring and it was interesting that you spoke about the, the subject knowledge because I had this conversation the other day about some of the best teachers I had and, and we spoke about the presence of the teachers and what they had about them and we narrowed it down to to their, just their subject knowledge they had such deep subject knowledge that they could just grip you with um, with stories and analogies and, and so on so it, it's great that that's been recognized by the mentees so so each of the chapters is related to one of the teaching standards for the early career framework and, and you begin each chapter with a, a sort of literature, literature literature review related to that standard and we're going to unpick just a just a, a few of them to give listeners a flavor of the book but can i ask you what standard did you learn the most about when writing them well, I said I was going to come back to it and it was the subject knowledge standard um, for me. I mean, I always knew it was vital, but when I trained um, kind of in the in the 2000s, um, it wasn't really something that we covered on our PGT at all. We'd all done an English degree and we're just expected to kind of know about some of the plays and books that we would be doing. We spent a lot more time on things that actually have probably been debunked now. Um, so you think such as your, your VARC, your learning styles and things like that and, and differentiating by worksheet and all of those things that we don't tend to do as a profession now if we're, if we're evidence-led. Um, I know that ITT is has moved with the times and is much better now. I should imagine that the experience that my husband might have who, who's possibly training in September will be extremely different from, from what I had. Um, so I always knew it was important, but I think doing the research for this just showed me how important it was. Um, I mean, there was a study by, by Co in 2014 that said that subject and curriculum knowledge was the, had the biggest impact on, on student outcomes, or was certainly one of them. And Go, you know, going on from that, Sadler in 2013 found a correlation between teachers and student understanding. And it's obvious, isn't it? It's just like you said before, you know, we've all had those top sets who tried to test us um, and, and, you know, ask us these questions. And, you know, if, if we've got a really robust sound subject knowledge, our passion comes out from us, you know, you can see it written, written on our faces, really. Um, and I just learned so much about it from reading like the, the writing really about curriculum at the moment, which is linked heavily to it. So, you know, reading the work of people like Christine Council, when I really love this quote she did um, that she said where the curriculum is like a narrative mm -hmm. where every part tells a story. It's unifying, it's pulling together so that they function and pupils can make connections. Um, and it, and, you know, that led on to kind of me looking at Rosenshine's Principles of Instruction and Tom Sherrington's amazing book. Um, and, and to be honest, that has transformed my teaching completely. Um, and, and, uh, and I'm sure it's transformed many other people's, you know, the, 
they're starting a lesson with retrieval, the small steps for new material, the guided practice, the scaffold, the independent practice. I mean, it's just excellent teaching, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the curriculum, the grand narratives of learning, as Debbie Kidd calls them, that's part of it. It underpins it all. So for me, I was kind of researching all of this stuff for this standard and going nodding, you know, like a little nodding dog in the background. I thought my head was going to fall off at some point, but I loved writing that chapter and it really changed my thinking and cemented some of the things that I'd been thinking over the last few years. So I did, and it's interesting that you, that you kind of commented there about that it's just excellent teaching it is, and, and it's like it validate some of the stuff that you that you did and you're like yeah i do that that's exactly what i do they just got a a name and you know that it's 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 well researched and and evidence and it just gives that a little bit more gravitas and clarity to to the way that you yeah your instruction yeah i mean it's exactly that and like you know there's this whole kind of debate isn't there that polarizes education this trad these prog yawn debate Um, and I think we're all always somewhere in the middle and we all want to do what's best for our kids because at the end of the day you know as teachers we don't come into this for the cash do we let's face it we all want to make an impact and a difference on young people and I think we're all somewhere in between really Um, and I think debates like kind of trad and prog they water it down Um, it's noise we don't need it um, so I think we can learn a lot from from some of the work that people like Debbie Kidd does, like Howell does, um, you know, where they're looking at, um, you know, experiential learning and grand narratives of, of curriculum, but also to be able to get your cog science and your metacognition in there as well. Definitely. It's, it's, as you're right, we're somewhere in the middle and it's having that having that balance and it's letting the, the kind of the curriculum drive the pedagogy and kind of kind of. I don't know what I'm trying to say, whatever there's in the curriculum and the best way to deliver it, whether it's through a, a experiential learner or through a very much teacher-led approach, it's, it's choosing the right approach to really, really help children master the learning. And, and I'm a big fan of, of standard two, how people learn, because as you said, it's something that we now know a, a quite a bit about, but it's not always been part of our, of our standards in, in, our, in our profession. And, and it's, it's so refreshing to see it as part of, of a standard. Um, teaching standards, sorry. So can you share why why is that standard important and what does the research tell us? I think it was Dylan William who said that it's the single most important thing for teachers to know. I think that tweet has gone down in history now from a few years ago. And I, I think he's spot on. I absolutely agree with him. Um, you know, as I said, I trained in the 2000s. If somebody would have asked me what CLT was and uh, metacognition back in them days that I said they needed to see a, a doctor to be honest that I thought it was some kind of disease um, and I just didn't know anything about it so a big a big epiphany moment for me really was reading Sweller's work uh, and his writing and it's completely transformed my my pedagogy you know reading about cognitive load theory and intrinsic extraneous and germane load and you know thinking about like my classroom even you know um about distractions in my classroom you know and disruptions even displays um I mean one of the um, pieces of research that I found for that chapter which was really fascinating was the clever classrooms from the University of Salford um and they were talking about uh, displays there and they said that you should have 20 to 50 percent of your wall space left blank now you know, anybody who follows me on Twitter or has ever seen pictures of me, I am an extra person, okay? So, you know, I'm not beige. I'm no beige Betty. 
I like a lot of colour. I like a lot going on. My classrooms used to be like some kind of hallucinogenic drug, I think. Um, <laughs> and, you know, more was more. I'm a maximalist in every sense of the word. So this kind of made me step back and think, wow, do you know what? Actually, I have sometimes seen kids when I'm teaching looking at one of my displays, um, you know, and getting distracted by it and not listening to what I'm saying. And I kind of had answers for all of these things now. Um, and, and things like the poor working memory, when, when you look at stuff like that, you know, I've taught a lot of lower sets in my career um, of kids who actually, when I look at them now, I used to probably just think they were quite lazy and daydreamers. And don't get me wrong, some of them are. Um, but now I kind of have, have read a lot of this research. It's made me realise that actually it is probably poor working memory. And there's, there's some research that, that Kane et al. did in 2017 where they were talking about one of the most common signs of, of cognitive um, memory overload is kids looking out of a window um, because, you know, they have to switch off for a minute because they're not sure, like, the processing, what, what to process first, really. And, you know, it's really enabled me to get a lot more skilled at scaffolding mm -hmm. and teaching more effectively. And whether that's direct instruction or modeling, using my visualizer, which, you know, visualizers are just amazing, aren't they? You know, um, and, you know, all, all of that stuff, really. So that's why I think that standard is just so important. And really, if people are picking up my book and reading anything, I think that is the game changer. Um, I mean, I don't think we can just take for granted that new new teachers that know about this, um, because we wouldn't do that with kids, would we? we you know, we would test the prior knowledge mm -hmm. before we adapted our teaching. We wouldn't we wouldn't do that. So I think we need to be the same with with. ITT students and early career teachers and make sure that they've got a good understanding of it and books like like Tom's um are fantastic for that and, and Kate Jones's work on retrieval um as well but actually the Sweller um, uh, um research articles are actually really mm. um, accessible as well um and, and Dylan Williams work so there's a wealth of stuff out there you know, there's, there's there's so much in it and it's it's great you're talking about your classroom i can just imagine what what it would look like and it just leopard prints all sorts you know <laughs> just what, what a wonderful wonderful place it would have been but you're right in terms of students learning like what what did that what would that be doing and and interesting I've, I've read that clever classrooms report and it's it caused me to go in the next day and just tear down all the things that were at the front yeah. to the back but the things yeah. at the front were were all down and, I, and you mentioned about the working memory overload there's so many times that the children are just looking out the window and I even think back to giving too many instructions and then getting yes. frustrated that children forgot what my fourth instruction was yes <laughs> you yes. know it's, but now I give it in such smaller steps and it's changed my, my practice practice so much and it's great as you say that we're not taking it for granted that anymore that teachers need to know this stuff so in, in a couple of years we'll have a profession of teachers that just know how teaching, teaching learns so their career is starting with them knowing how to deliver really high quality instruction. So yeah, yeah. definitely. 
And I, and I think that that thing that um, Tom says in his Rosenshine book about the 80-20 success rate as well has been massive for me, like as a confidence boost, you know, your, your multiple choice questions, your regular revisiting of things. And, and you know, when you read some of um, Kat Howard's work, Mary Myatt's work on the curriculum and it being a narrative, you know, so we're making sure that when kids get to year 10 in my, in English, for example, in my subject, that isn't the first time that they're learning about what a tragic hero is, you know, or who Aristotle was. They're bumped into it again. I think that's one of Pat Howard's um, phrases, you know, keep bumping into things mm -hmm. as they go around. And, you know, I, I just think the work on curriculum has just changed so much about our practice and and CLT and metacognition is a huge part of that because we now understand the way that kids learn definitely and, it, and you what you noting on the, the curriculum people are now really thinking hard about when they're going to revisit topics and I, and I love that analogy I keep bumping into these these ideas so that it isn't new and they do have that background knowledge and, and their own knowledge in their long-term memory to access sorry to tap into so then their their own writing and in, in, for example English can just be so much better because they're not being overloaded with with stuff they can tap into and, and write with more ease so thank you for that and the, the second one I, I want to chat about um to just go out to, to have a peek inside the the book is this the adapting teaching standard I find that such a, a fascinating standard and how do we how do we get right in terms of adapt our teaching so what does the research say on 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 it Right, I can't speak today. What does the research say on adapting teaching? Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I think this is important that it's in the book because actually, with the exception of probably behaviour, I think adapting teaching is probably the hardest thing to crack as an early career teacher. And I think that's probably because as um, an inexperienced practitioner, we are very tied to our planning, um, or I certainly remember it being kind of like a security blanket, to be honest. And like, you know, no matter whether kids have got it or not, you would get through this lesson, even if it meant, you know, um, stopping a task halfway through to do that plenary, you know, it, it, that's what it's like, isn't it? Because you're kind of so precious about it. I mean, when I trained, it was like the four part lesson or something, I know, you know, all of that stuff has kind of changed and adapted and gone out the window now. So, I mean, a lot of the research that I was reading about adaptive teaching was stressing that need to be flexible because, you know, teaching is a dynamic profession. We, we need to understand the levels of the students' knowledge, you know, to build on them, essentially. Um, it, I think it's what Schoen calls reflection in action. Um, and, you know, when we're kind of thinking about um, adapting our teaching, it comes back a little bit to that scary phrase differentiation, I think, which has been batted about and changed and, you know, mutated beyond probably all different parameters of what it first meant. Um, you know, and having that high expectation of challenge for all with a support from a teacher so that kids actually have the opportunity to meet your expectations. Um, and adapting teaching as well, you know, it's, it's very much based around what special educational needs your students might have in your class as well and the best strategies to use for that. So in the book, I talk about Davis et al. Uh, in 2004, looked at the different special educational needs that some students might have and some of the evidence-based strategies that might be best to actually approach how to, to teach them and adapt to your teaching. Um, you know, and it takes good, meaningful, formative assessment to 
do that as well because you know we have to know where these students are in the learning right. journey you know how are we going to get them there um and that that's how we're adapting our teaching all the time as we go out with this dynamic kind of following process and i know a lot of schools um have changed they used to do units that were very much in half termly blocks and even if a kid hadn't really got something you had to get through the unit and i think that's changed now and i think it's been seen as a more kind of fluid process that can be built on and i, I can only say i think that's a good thing and you know it's not it's not really about grades i suppose it's about building this culture of academia in every single set Mm-hmm. You know, I, th- I think uh, Tom Tom Sherrington called it teaching to the top, and and you know we all use that phrase now. Um, and and building a culture of excellence. So you know, it's about having a passion for learning and an adaptive teaching's part as that. Because if we adapt our teaching, it means that kids won't get bored, but it, because they won't be doing the same stuff over and over and over again. Um, but at the same time, they won't be able to access work. Uh, not access work sorry so you know we we give them a, an adequate level of challenge but we adapt our teaching to the needs of our class to to make sure we have this can-do culture well, definitely and as you as you mentioned it is one of the hardest thing to do is in the teacher because you you have your lesson and you want to stick so rigidly to it but it's about being a little bit more responsive to the to the students in in front of you and it's and it's great that we're becoming more aware of how to support um, young people with dyslexia, with autism and, and so on. And we really are starting to figure out how best to support them. And, and, and that'll be so important for mentors to help their, their early career teachers really get to grips with that. And if they have these young people in their class, how are they, how are they best going to adapt their teaching to, to meet their needs? And it's a great thing to have as part of our standard. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, rem- I remember probably, and you'll probably have similar memories of being a newly qualified by teacher or being an ITT student and being observed and having that blind (laughs) sweaty panic of keeping looking at the clock and they had a copy of your lesson plan and you've and you've got the copy of the lesson plan in front of you and you're going oh my god they've got two minutes left to finish this task and I've not even on to the next one yet and that is that sweaty palm clenching moments and you know I think those days are gone we're not we're not restricted to to moving on moving on moving on and and and, you know it's all about adapting and you know I've had experiences recently where classes probably haven't got a concept and I've said right let's just park what we're doing a minute and let's go back to this and you know that's what we need to do don't we to make sure that students that have got that prior knowledge then that bedrock to start building schema later on um, and making progress and I feel like sometimes that used to go out the window a little bit because people were so desperate to get through schemes definitely to get through the, the task to task but I think that's a, the, the sign of a, of a really strong teacher just to be able to recognize well, we need to stop here we need to go back a little bit we need to recover topics I need to give you more scaffolding to to help you help you build that so it's really great that, that teachers will be learning that so that was two of the standards and and there's a lot to review for for all of the is it eight standards eight eight yeah eight standards so that in, in all the books and in the book and, and there's lots of strategies for um how mentors can can help their, their mentees and, and it's really filled with with such great gems so i want to ask um 
a question I read, and you wrote a, a couple of blogs. So the next couple of questions will come out some of the blogs that you've written recently on mentoring. And I want to ask you, what impact does does mentoring have, mentoring of a teacher have on their students? I think happy teachers equals happy students. <laughs> you know, if I mean it's obvious, isn't it? You don't need to be kind of Sigmund Freud to work that one out. I think um, you know, if if a teacher is um, unfulfilled. Um, unhappy with the job, feels no direction, no autonomy, then that is going to come down into the classroom. There's no doubt about it. Um, so I think a teacher um, feeling positive, um, feeling supported, having a positive relationship with colleagues can only lead to stability, I think, in the profession um, and also better teaching. It's as easy as that. If, if... I mean, I think back to my own, my own experience as, as an early career teacher, because I had such strong mentoring, I, I was so much more calm and relaxed and, and happier in front of the students. So, of course, that's going to translate. Um, I'm, I'm going to take a quote from, from one, of those, um, one of those blogs, and, and I really like this one, and I'd like to uh, ask you a little bit about it. You, you wrote that no matter what stage of your career you are at, being mentored can have fantastic results and can revitalize and re-energize your focus. So I want to ask you, how can mentoring help those at any stage of their career and not just the early career teachers? Yeah, so I mean, I'm probably going to go back to a personal anecdote again to start this one off. Um, when I stepped down from a position of responsibility in a school and came to Saddleworth School seven years ago, um, I was lost like completely and utterly lost. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. There wasn't the um, wealth of opportunities for development and progression that there, there are opening up in teachers at the moment today. You know, it was kind of uh, traditional middle leadership or pastoral leadership, assistant head, deputy head, head. Um, you know, and we've had so many other opportunities open up since then that it's been, I think it's been good for the profession, but we need more, <laughs> particularly around mentoring, I think. Um, but, um, you know, I have been healed at Saddlewood School, um, to sound cheesy, over the last seven years. And that's because I've had a succession of excellent mentors. So they've been able to build my confidence, um, which was at zero, to be quite honest, um, to be my cheerleader, but also actually to be my critical friend. Mm -hmm. um, and I've, I've needed that at times, like completely and utterly needed it. You know, so as I said in that quote, it has revitalized and re-energized my focus so that now I am ambitious once again. I do really want to be an excellent leader. Um, and, you know, experienced teachers, that they're, they're worth their weight in gold, aren't they? You know, that was why I wrote Preserving Positivity. You know, I'm so interested in keeping experienced teachers in the classroom. And having a mentor as an experienced teacher, we don't usually have someone like that to talk through things with. And they're not even necessarily a line manager. Like, I would say one of my, like, most fantastic mentors at school it was actually my student teacher five years ago, uh, and he's now the second in department, so he's actually my boss now, so, <laughs> which is slightly bizarre dynamic, but, you know, and, and his words of wisdom, he sees things in a different way than I do, he's very strategic, and I have that element to my personality, but I'm also quite uh, creative, so, so we work really well together, and you know, having a mentor at whatever stage of your career, it just adds so much to your professional life. You know, it's a really dynamic collegiate process. 
which fosters like a sharing of professional expertise and it's mutually beneficial. I've learned so much from being a mentor myself. No, certainly, and I'm the same, and it, it it's definitely so viable because I mean, in, in Scotland at times you can do your NQT or have all the support and then get a job and then that's you for the rest of your career. So it's so important that you have these people that are your cheerleaders that will build you back up, but also challenge you and, and be your critical friend. They are so important to, to have, and, and I've been blessed in my career, like like you, to have some really, really great ones as, as I go through. And, I, and I've worked in a few different schools, and each school is, I've had people that have challenged me and, and made me want to be better all the time. So it, it's it's excellent that you, that you noted that. So um, just to close off the, the interview, interview section before we go on to the quickfire uh, round, um, can I ask you, how can we create mentoring cultures in our schools and, and why is that so important? I think um, a mentoring culture is not just like an add-on. Essentially, it needs to be embedded completely and be part of the, the school's culture from the top down to, to the bottom. Um, and it kind of links in with what I was saying before, really, that even the head teacher needs a mentor, I think. Um, and very often we'll get that in his, his, his part of his senior leadership team. Um, and, you know, mentoring needs status. I think I touched on before about the fact that we've got different opportunities coming up in teaching now. And I think that we've traditionally had assistant head roles that are based around staff development and, um, you know, performance management and CPD. But I think there is space there for somebody overseeing mentoring in a school. And those kind of positions, I've noticed, are becoming more available now um, because it's a big job and it needs status and it needs time, basically, because a lot of mentors, and I've said this so many times, um, you know, their advice, which and very time poor. Um, so, you know, they need the time to be able to do it well. I think in schools as well, there also needs to be a really careful consideration when you're matching mentors with mentees in terms of what the mentor's needs are and what the expertise of the mentor are. And as I said, it doesn't necessarily need to be hierarchical at all. Um, you know, there are many, many things that I've learned from teachers who've been teaching half the time that I've taught but they might have a particular layer of expertise. They might be a data whiz and can sit and do that with me. Um, so it is about matching the needs and expertise, giving mentors the training and the time and the, and the support and encouragement and status mm -hmm. that they need to do the job well. No, definitely. It's important that you've noticed that the status, it needs to be given the, the status that it deserves because mentors are not only so important for early career teachers because they really shape them. And, and if they, they don't have the time if you're a if you're a mentor and you're teaching a full timetable and have then have to mark all your books and, and provide all the, all the work and plan all your lessons but also mentor a student the workload can be far too much and you're not as you're saying they've got advice rich but time poor so it's creating the space and the time for mentors to to be able to devote their time to support early career teachers and really offer that kind of um, shoulder to, to cry on at times and crack the whip on occasion when they, when they need to and offer that that advice so it's important and I love that you noted that even a, a head teacher needs a mentor because of course they do because um, 
I can't speak from any sort of experience. I'm miles away from being a head teacher, but it must, it must be such a lonely job. You know, you I think now more than ever, you know, now more than ever. I mean, like, you know, some of the decisions that head teachers have been having to make, they've been having to track and trace, you know, making decisions literally that, that could be like essentially life and death decisions for people's grandma, for people's families, you know, and wow, I mean, what a job senior leadership teams and head teachers in particular are doing up and down the country. I mean, of course they need mentors, you know, and um, I think it's only right and right and proper that they should have them. But particularly now in this time when we've all got to kind of heal as a, as a race and as a profession, really, um, you know, I think early career teachers need mentors more than ever now. A lot of them have been set adrift working from home, um, you know, and not having that collegiate environment. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, both of us have worked with lots of newly qualified teachers before, I'm sure. And they very often will stop you in the corridor and say, I'm thinking of doing this today. What do you think? And it's those informal bits of support. And, you know, it, I think, so, I can't remember who, who said the quote now, but it's, it's spot on that, you know, it takes a whole school to build a teacher. Um, and, and the same can be said, you know, somebody will have a specific mentor but actually it takes the whole department the whole school the whole senior leadership team getting involved to build a successful teacher it's not just about the formal mentors it's about the informal ones as well definitely all that little conversations but over the photocopier and and um, yeah. in the staff room are, are so 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 important and also highlights the the importance of early career teachers getting outside of their department Yes. Especially in, in, and in primary, getting outside of that, that whatever uh, stage of, of primary they're at and, and going and seeing and speaking to different different teachers with different different experience because there's so much wisdom. You see, I think it was David Weston that I spoke to and spoke about the collective wisdom of our profession is just yes. profound. So it's, it's yeah. tap, tapping into that. So that's us finished the interview section. Highly, we're going to move into the quickfire round where I've got quite loaded questions that are um, <laughs> broad, broad in scope and I just want your, you know, shoot from the hip kind of answers. But before we do that, can you please um, direct listeners to where they can buy um, both your books um, and also where they can connect with you on social media and follow up on anything that piqued their interest today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you can buy Preserving Positivity, either direct from John Cat, who published it, um, or on Amazon. Um, I think also Waterstones and, and other bookshops sell it. Um, and very similar for Mentoring in Schools that was published by Crown House. Um, I think they've actually got a discount on at the moment. Um, I can't remember what the code is, though. I think it's something like Spring 2020 or something. But if you tune into my uh, book launch um and i'll put it on my twitter you, you can see it there so you can buy it from amazon waterstones and direct from crown house and you can follow me on twitter on at use highly um although i do warn you that i talk a lot about fashion um rupaul's drag race interspersed with some pedagogy um and i do cpd up and down the country as well um that's picking up quite a lot at the moment um due to the kind of increased awareness of thinking and um focus on mentoring and you can book me through independent thinking limited brilliant what, what an offer I, i've thoroughly enjoyed discussing discussing with you so i can only imagine how wonderful uh, the 
the CPD sessions will be. So thanks so much. So we're now going to go into uh, our quick fire round. Uh, I've got three questions. I asked those of all my guests and I received such fascinating, fascinating insights to, to their beliefs and in teaching. So are you ready? Yes. <laughs> so, so question number one is what makes great teaching for you? It needs to be challenging, but accessible and irresistible to students. Oh, I like that. Irresistible. I really like that. I don't think anyone's ever said that before. So fascinating. Thank you. And um, question number two is, is what one thing would you prioritize to bring about great teaching in every classroom? Well, I'm going to cheat a bit now and it's two, but it's part of the same thing. So modeling and metacognition. Brilliant. Thank, thank you so much. And, and there's so much stuff out there on, on modeling and met metacognition. And I'm really excited. You mentioned, I think it was before we came on, Jenny Webb, and, and she's got a, a book coming out quite soon. That it's, yeah. I'm really looking forward to read that. So thank you. And the final question uh, of the quick fire round, Hangley, is if you could change one thing in education, what would that be? Oh, high stakes accountability, full stop. Well, it would definitely free us up to, to start focus on the things that actually matter and that actually move the needle for our, for our student outcomes. So thank you for that. So that brings us to the, to the end of the interview. Um, thank you so much, Hayley, for, for giving up your time this evening after such a busy day. Um, I'll now let you go and, and put your feet up and, and put, um, put some TV on or do whatever it is you want to do for the, the rest of you. But thanks so much for agreeing to come on Becoming Educated and speak with me tonight. It was an absolute pleasure, seriously. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Educated. As ever, I would be delighted to hear your thoughts and you can contact me via Twitter at DNLeslie or via email. So that you don't miss out, I urge you to subscribe to the podcast. And while I have your attention, why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from so that many, many others can access Becoming Educated. I'll be back next week with another episode of Becoming Educated and I do hope to see you there.